Hey podcast listeners, it's Erica and Grace from the Common Thread Podcast. Today, we're talking about student debt. Right now, borrowers owe over $1.5 trillion of it, and that number grows every day. In this episode, we caught up with Bob Hildreth, founder of the Hildreth Institute, a new nonprofit that advocates for debt-free college. We talked with him about the effects of student debt on students and schools, and how to address the problem. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Bob Hildreth. Bob, thank you so much for coming and talking with us today. Um, first, I want to get a little information on your background and what brought you to found the Hildreth Institute. Uh, yes. Um, my background is as a son of two public school teachers uh, and as a relative to many other teachers, most of whom went to Salem State. I've always been interested in education, although myself, I am a... Um, uh, a businessman as far as my uh, profession. Uh, at the age of 50, I was able to um, stop practicing business and begin to build some uh, foundations around education. And one of them was called Inversant. And the idea of Inversant was to get parents involved in the education of their children through a financial mechanism. So what we did was offer uh, the parents to um, save for their children's college education by matching what they saved. We were very happy with the result in terms of the numbers of people who came, low-income people, and the amount that they saved. But we increasingly were frustrated to see that the savings were not keeping up with the increases in tuition. So we were kind of uh, having the parents chase their tail. This led us to create a second foundation called the Hildreth Institute, which is directly um, working on the question of student debt and uh, tuition increases uh, so that um, we can uh, end the scour- scourge uh, which affects both students and colleges uh, in very bad ways. A scourge. That's that's a pretty intense word. Could you paint us a picture of the state of student debt right now, the scourge that you're talking about? Right. Um, student debt uh, is at about $1.5, $1.6 trillion outstanding. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Uh, it's a hard number to get your uh, your hands around something that large. Uh, it is a debt which is performing very badly in that if you count up the defaults, the deferments, uh, the uh, special repayment deals, on any given day, only about half of what should be paid is paid. So this is really a non-performing debt and it grows every year. Those are problems for the United States government. What are the problems, though, for the students? One of the problems for the students is they don't know about their debt because um, they don't have to start paying their debt until six months after they graduate. So it isn't a factor in their daily life at any time while they're in college. It's beyond uh, their... uh, beyond their concern. Um, But once they get to that payment, a typical $30,000 to $35,000 worth of debt 
will result in three hundred uh, to three hundred and fifty dollars per month uh, of debt repayments. Uh, it is even for those that end up making the payments. Um, they usually uh, only keep up with the interest, so that the principal never goes down. It always sticks with them, uh, and. Um, it starts to affect basic life decisions, such as where you're going to work. Uh, is is your girlfriend or boyfriend more indebted than you are? Are you going to, once you get married, are you going to have kids? Can you buy a home? Can you buy a car? When will you start saving for retirement? Uh, people are always shocked when I tell them that one million people in assisted living homes right now have student debt. And when they die, the obligation of that student debt will pass on to the heirs. I didn't know that. That's a problem. Yes, that's a problem for the students. What about the problem for the colleges? Last night, uh, the um, uh, uh, College of New Rochelle uh, closed. Mm -hmm. Uh, 3,000 students were affected. They didn't have the money to keep going. In this particular case, those 3,000 students uh, were able to find a home at Mercy College. One of the um, uh, bright spots in all of this is that all colleges right now are having problems with endowments so that there is room if you plan well for even when you're going bankrupt for your students to find better uh, place to live. But if you look at the nine colleges that recently have gone under in Massachusetts, it can often get ugly. Um, you you don't have a college in your backyard. You don't have necessarily a college that has the same major that you're taking. Uh, you are faced with uh, different tuitions, and you, you may not be able to get the same amount of financial aid that you got. Uh, and what happens uh, to your whole life on a college, your friends, your clubs, your favorite teachers, your mentors. You lose all of that when you just go off to another college. So this has a, a, a real issue for the government in terms of the large quantity of debt, the students in terms of very basic life decisions, and colleges. Uh, in terms of whether they can stay open or not. That's really interesting that you mentioned colleges because I think that when a lot of people think about student debt, they're thinking about the effect on students but not necessarily how that affects institutions. Well, the way it affects colleges, uh, uh, you really have to uh, uh, think about this. Um, I said before there was $1.6 trillion. Well, that's the debt owed by the students, but that's also the free money that all goes to colleges. So the colleges One, already have that money? They. What happens is when we give a debt to you, the student, mm -hmm. that money is set aside for the college and then is wired or is sent to the college, and that's free money for them. I see. So... Uh, what does it mean? Well, it's one thing to have $1 free money. It's another thing to have $1.6 trillion of free <laughs> money. It changes your whole perspective so that you can make some v 
some very bad decisions. Uh, one of the bad decisions is it has led colleges to continually increase tuition because they know that about half of that tuition hike is going to they're going to receive it in a in a transfer from the federal government. So, you know, if you have to raise prices, any business would love to know that one half of their tuition inc- or their their price increase is in the bag. Uh, uh, airline, for example, would love to know when they increase their fares that one half is going to come from the federal government. Um, so it it leads to these repetitive. Uh, price increases, which now we've gotten used to. We've got it's the new normal that every year in every college tuition goes up about four percent. So that means that for every student who enters a college and who stays four years at their college, that by from the time that they enter to the time they graduate, they're facing a sixteen percent increase in their college. Every student in every college in America. That's a lot. That's a lot. So this is a huge problem. It's affecting institutions and students. Where do you even begin to fix this? I think what you do is you look at the bad behaviors and try to correct them. A bad behavior I haven't mentioned is because so much federal money is going to colleges, and I'm also including here public colleges like UMass, the state money has been given a pass. So states are funding uh, their own colleges much less than they had to before. Let the federal government do it. Well, that's really a bad idea. States have to step up and fund and we have gotten so far behind on what states should be giving to their government. So that's one thing. You have to find a way to get states to again contribute their fair share into their colleges. Then you have to see uh, the problem of tuition increases. There has to be control over tuition. One way to do it is through regulation. I mean, the federal, if the federal government is uh, giving uh, $1.6 trillion, actually it's double that from 1965 when the program began, that means they have a great deal of influence over the colleges. That's the college's lifeline that if the uh, federal government stopped, they could not uh, uh, open the doors. So the colleges um, uh, could be regulated by the federal government. They could say something like, um, from this day on, there are no more tuition increases. Or they could say, we've created an index which reflects the main components of college expenditure. So um, it can only go up by this index amount, all colleges. So regulation is possible. The only thing about regulation is that our colleges are so different. I mean, to compare an Amherst college to a UMass, you might as well be declaring an elephant and a zebra. I mean, there's nothing. So to to regulate them with, uh, with one fell swoop, one uh, law or rule strikes me as something you're going to get into a lot of trouble within a few years, that it just won't match. A better way is to leave it to the market. And remember, I was a businessman, so I uh, very much like the market. And that is to try to find ways to 
make colleges have some skin in the game. And that is to have them face some of the liability anyway of these college loans. Um, one way is enforced right now by the federal government. If your students uh, as graduates uh, default at a rate which is above what the government says is possible, then you lose your right to student loans. So that's, it shows you that, you know, you can, um, uh, you can put constraints on colleges where essentially that gives them some skin in the game. Uh, there are a bunch of other ways. Um, uh, one way is uh, to make uh, uh, colleges um, responsible f instead of lending to students, you would lend to colleges. And then you would have to figure out a way to get, the, uh, get money back to the colleges because what are they going to pay the loans with? Uh, but or you know, um, Senator Gillibrand has this, uh, and and quite a few people have talked about it because it's in force in England and Australia, where once kids get to uh, their jobs and once they reach a certain level of income, then they have to give back money that uh, is credited against the college's loan. So it decreases what the college has to pay. Uh, there are other ways too. Now, that, that's a really interesting system you bring up there. So just break that down a little bit more for me because it, so it sounds kind of complicated. So rather yeah. than the money going to the student the, or the, explain this, so the debt goes to the college rather than to the student yes. when the money comes That's not a change. The, okay. the money goes to the uh, college now. Mm -hmm. uh, that would stay the same. But instead of going as a... Uh, as a transfer of free money, it would go as a loan to the college. Okay, so it's just changing the circumstances under which they receive their the money. obligation, right? Uh, the circumstances under which they receive the money, mm -hmm. correct? Then they can either decide to lend the money to the uh, students, and that means they get skin in the game. The colleges do by having to collect it or suffer the consequences if it's not collected, mm -hmm. or uh, they could, um, as I said before, grant it to the uh, students and have the students pay that amount uh, once they get a job. Where does the Holdreth Institute come into all of this? Now, would the Institute uh, challenge the state to uh, invest more in college students or colleges and say colleges or uh, would it just be to lobby for a specific legislation, or would the right. institute act in a different way? We are very act. We have several tools. One is legislative, so we are supporting a number of bills before Beacon Hill, which would uh, uh, have the um, government give more money to public schools. Mm -hmm. As an example of one, many years ago. Uh, there was what was called a um, endowment match law. It said that if somebody gave, uh, let's say, a million dollars to the UMass system, to their endowment, goes on every day, then the, the state would match a certain portion of that to add money to the state college. We're very much in favor of that. As far as tuition increases are concerned, uh, we hope 
uh, uh, starting in the next few weeks uh, and um, uh, into the spring, that every time there's a tuition increase by a college, we hope to be out there with some uh, social activity, such as a picket line in front of the admissions office, drawing attention of the students to the fact that even though they just got a two-line email message that the tuition increased, it really did happen, and we're shouting about it. And I think uh, we could, I hope, make uh, the college administrations uncomfortable enough that they at least begin a discussion about these, these constant uh, tuition increases. These all seem like preventative me um, measures for, like, uh, avoiding student debt. In the what future. about this in the future? What about students who already have maybe twenty thousand, maybe two hundred thousand dollars in student loans? Yes. What? How can the Hildreth Institute or any of these initiatives help those students? That uh, is money already out the door, and it has to be handled a different way. I should say at this time that when I said I was a businessman, I was an investment banker in sovereign debt. In other words, I was involved for years in the uh, uh, bankruptcies, if you will, or the debt restructurings of countries like Ecuador or Nigeria or, or um, Argentina. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, th the first thing you should know is that there are plenty of instances where uh, bad debt uh, is handled. And uh, investment banks and the government, the Treasury, knows exactly what to do if they're willing to admit that the emperor has no clothes, or that is to say, Ecuador can no longer pay. Uh, one month ago in Puerto Rico, they restructured the debt. People received, I'm not sure, but much less than 100 cents on the dollar. And it was calculated by what in the future can um, uh, Puerto Rico pay. So let's change that and say, what in the future can a student pay of existing debt? Mm -hmm. So um, uh, one thing you can do, unlike happened in Puerto Rico, is you can really examine that $1.6 trillion. And what you do is you say, how much is being paid back 100%? How much is not being paid back at all? And you can create all the way from uh, zero to a hundred. You can create ranges of those debt. Do I explain myself so far? So then you go out and you say, the federal government says, "Well, we're going to sell this debt, and the debt uh, that is paying a hundred percent is bought by the market at just about par, a hundred percent. I mean, it's a lock. These kids." Rich kids are going to continue to pay because mm -hmm. they don't want a bad uh, debt score, right? Mm -hmm. The people at zero, the uh, the the private sector may only pay two percent, or if I zero zero, but let's say five five percent of the debt is being re repaid of what should have been repaid by a certain mm -hmm. student. Maybe they would pay two percent for it. You know, low margin of profit, 2%. So we now have all of the debt from the government to the private sector, and they're holding all these debt, all with these different prices from 2% up to 100%, okay? The government 
will then look at that and say, huh, we will now issue new debt certificates. Mm -hmm. Those of you at 100, you're going to continue to pay what you've paid. Mm -hmm. But we're going to, for, uh, we're going to uh, forgive 98% uh, of the debt that uh, the, the private sector would only pay 2% for. It's exactly what's happening, let's say, in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. It happens all the time. So that now a student who can hardly pay the debt will have hardly any debt mm -hmm. so that they can get back on, uh, on repayments, paying a teeny bit, and restore their score, their credit score. Mm -hmm. Did I make myself understood? Yes. Yes, I understand it. So the... The students who can pay 100% of their uh, student debt don't have student debt is that because they're not taking out any loans because their parents can pay. But in that, um, just say, for instance, those people who are wealthy, they're already taken care of, but it's the 2% who, I mean, the lower uh, bottom who can't pay anything or are only able to pay 2%, the private sector is going to pay for that, and then the government is going to... Kind of decrease, yeah. uh, wipe off its exactly. books. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Ninety-eight percent of that debt. How? Well, the only the thing is, okay. To that. okay, because they'll have a big loss, right? They will, Regardless. because they'll have a big loss. But remember what I said at the beginning of this podcast: they're already in a big loss situation. Right. They're losing every day fifty percent of their debt. This might be better when you really analyze it. They might get a better return. But, you know, reality is reality. It's like in 2008. If your whole, a whole block of houses lose all of their value, then the value of that block is zero. Mm -hmm. and, and so the only thing I'd like to um, add to what you just said is the wealthy don't have debt anyway. Mm -hmm. But plenty of people <clears throat> are able to pay 100%. And so those people will continue to pay 100%. How can we guarantee that they'll pay their 100% if they know that if they only pay 2%, the federal government will wipe their slate clean? The, uh, the credit market guarantees it automatically by if they are given a certificate that says 100% of the debt, you know, they let's say they had $30,000 of the debt before and after they have $30,000 of debt, if they stop paying, it's the same thing of why they paid before and why they paid after. They don't want to lose their credit rating. I do want to jump back um, a few minutes earlier. You, mo you mentioned student activism. I'm really interested in that because even though student debt is such a problem, I haven't seen a whole ton of activism. So how does the Hildreth Institute plan on instigating that? Um, through a lot of hard work. It is hard. Recruitment is hard. Uh, one of the reasons is, of course, students are very busy. Another reason is that they're not paying yet. If, if we had a bunch of sophomores paying their debt back, be easy. It would be as easy as the uh, uh, the uh, draft cards in the 19, late 1960s. Um, but it's it's almost pernicious the way... It seems as if it's a benefit to the students to put it off as long as possible. But I bet somebody was thinking, you know, if, if we keep this away from their, you know, consciousness, then uh, it won't be a problem. But we are... It takes a lot of work a lot of money, uh, 
to organize this. I can o- we've, we're only a year and a half old. I only hope that will be easier than we're having it so far. But um, we've had some successes. So are you creating clubs on campus? What does that look like? Yes, we're creating at, at BC, uh, Tufts, UMass, uh, Boston, UMass, uh, uh, Amherst. We're creating clubs so that uh, these are the students who are going to learn a lot about their debt and so forth. Parallel to that, we have a what we call a flash structure. In other words, if any college all of a sudden raises their tuition, we want to be there. We want to know kids there. We want to know the professors who are progressive there, so that we can um, we can have a uh, can have a protest. So having a network, you might yes. call it. And, and network is is what we have been uh, building, uh, and um, we have successes. Like fifty people showed up for a tuition um, <clears throat> uh, protest that we had against UMass last summer, and we have failures, uh, such as the one you went to, and you were the only one who showed up. <laughs> um, for the podcast listeners, uh, we're. <laughs> Uh, Bob is referring to a presentation on student debt that was given on the BU campus, um, and I was the only student that showed up. It was me and you and a couple of faculty members, I think, and that was it. Thank God you were there. (laughs) I'd like to thank Bob again for his time, and I'd also like to thank the rest of his team at the Hildreth Institute. Thanks for listening, you guys.